Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by this message. For more information about Metro Church, visit our website at metrochurch.org.au. First Kings chapter 18, verse 41. I believe that uh, regardless of what theme we're in at the moment, I feel like the Lord spoke to me about where we are right now as a church and where I believe lots of you are individually, whether this is your church or not. Um, but and if, by the way, you go, I um, want to know a bit more about this church, go grab this with our compliments. It's a magnificent book, which we've only just released. It's a book about the heart of our church. And we didn't do that to publicise us. We did that because so many people say, How, tell me what this church is about. And I go, well, I can tell you a lot of things that's not, but read this, uh, not full of data and stuff, but just full of some great uh, stories and just some great truths about what God is doing here. Grab that with our compliments and makes a great coffee table book, that's for sure. So grab that. Uh, here we go. First Kings 18 verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, who was the king of Israel, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. Now you need to know that prior to this point, there has been drought. Not one drop of rain has fallen for three and a half years. On Tuesday afternoon in Egypt, it rained. Uh, rained about three millimetres of rain. Now I had Googled annual rainfall of Egypt. It said, according to Google, the annual rainfall of Cairo is 0.0 millimetres. None, ever, no rain, zero, none in that place. And it started raining and, and uh, only a few millimetres of rain fell. The next day we went to the airport and there was no traffic, which is unheard of in Cairo. Uh, trust me, it's pretty crazy. No traffic whatsoever. And we asked the driver, where is all the traffic gone? He said the government gave all the schools and all the universities the day off because of the rain. <laughs> and we're kind of going like, that amount of rain in Australia, we would just think, thank God it washed our car. Uh, over there, everybody just took a day off because it rained. And so when you read this story we're reading here, understand that three and a half years, there's not been a drop of rain and not even dew upon the grass. There's been no moisture whatsoever. It's been an extremely devastating condition. And it says, so Ahab went up to eat and drink and then Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. The place that had been the uh, scene of idol worship, that's why he picked it. The place that had been the, the panorama of all that was ungodly and wrong had become the place of the supernatural of God. I wanna say to you tonight that God wants to turn your Mount Carmel's into the place of turning points in your life. The things where there has been all kinds of pressures and ungodly temptation and pressure. God wants to turn those things around so that they become instead of your test, they become your testimony. Instead of the place of your greatest pressure, they become the place of your greatest praise. And so when this guy is here on Mount Carmel and he bowed down the ground and put his face between his knees and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. He went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. Can I say to you, there's always gonna be those people around about your life that are gonna tell you what's not happening. 
They're going to tell you about the sickness that's still there. They're going to tell you about the economic situation that hasn't turned around. They're going to talk to you about the way that they still feel lonely and haven't found somebody that they want to share their life with. There's always going to be those people. And this guy is that saying to them, there's nothing there. And seven times, seven times, Elijah says, go back and look again. Verse 44, then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. Now watch this, because this is crazy. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. A cloud the size of a man's hand. He said, you better hurry because what I'm seeing is simply the sign of greater things to come. What I'm looking at right now is simply the evidence of the more than that God wants to do. Come on, because all of us here will have small things in our life. And God wants to say to you tonight, don't dismiss the small things. They're the evidence of the more than that's about to come. They're the evidence of what is coming your direction. Now, what happened in the meantime, verse 45, that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. Out of there is nothing, now we see there is a heavy rain. Out of, well, I'm struggling financially. All of a sudden it's now, there is phenomenal blessing. Out of all sickness again to my family, now there comes the miracle of God's healing. Out of, you know, all the pressure and all that's going on, now there comes such amazing praise and a spirit of peace and joy. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. He girded up his loins. That means he gathered up his garments and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Three and a half years of devastating drought. The false prophets and the priests of Baal have been defeated. And watch this, because the fire of God fell on a water-soaked sacrifice. Elijah had said to them, cut up the sacrifice, put it on the wood. And because I want you to see how supernatural this is, he said, get four pots of water, fill them to the brim and soak the wood. Soak the wood. Soak it so soaked that it cannot be human fire. God wants to display Himself, I believe, to His people in a way that we won't say that was coincidence. That could have just happened. But He wants to do it in such a way that we will have no choice but to step back and lift our hands before God and say, God, that had to be You. There's no way that could have taken place unless You'd been in it. The only way. Listen, I believe in activity and I believe in doing everything you can. But I know in my heart, what I'm always longing for, what I'm always looking for is God, will you do the supernatural so much that only you get the glory? I don't want to wear weak and look back and go, well, it might've been us. I want to look back and say, God, that had to be you. God, that had to be you. God, that had to be you. You're the one who did that. And so they poured this water and then he said, do it again. Then he said, do it again. And then he begins to pray And I want you to listen to this because the fire of God falls on the sacrifice. Whoosh, 
It's gone. Not slowly cooking. No crockpot stuff here. Not roasting on the barbecue. Instantly consumed. A water-soaked sacrifice evaporates in a second by the mighty power of God. How many people here tonight need that kind of power operating in your life and world? We need that, don't we? With all the skill we've got and with all the technology we have and with all the learning and the education. I don't know a family that doesn't need something of the supernatural of God that just we look at it and go, God, look what you did in that place. So it's spectacular, but watch, there's still no end of the drought. The spectacular of God came and went, but there was no refreshing. It's still a drought. There's still no rain until this man goes and begins to pray. Eight times he prays, first time followed by seven more. Now you would think after the fire and the supernatural falls, you would think that after that, the answer to the man of God's eight times prayer. He prayed once for fire, but he had to pray eight times for refreshing and for the drought to end in in his life and in the life of the people round about. You'd think that the answer would be spectacular. You'd think it would be unmissable. But verse 44 says, all they got for eight powerful times of prayer, all they got was a cloud the size of a man's hand. Not a cloud in the shape of a man's hand, but a cloud the size of a man's hand. You wouldn't even see it in the sky. It's just that tiny. You'd be looking at that thing and going, is that a cloud or is that just a puff of smoke? Is that just someone's hot breath? You know, what is that thing? Can I say to you tonight that so many times what God does first is not spectacular, it's often very, very missable. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 5, you'll know the story when I read it to you. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes and saw a great multitude coming toward Him. He said to Philip, where will we buy bread that these may eat? He said this to test Him, for He Himself knew what He was going to do. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread's not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. In other words, you know, we could empty our wallets, our bank accounts. We'll never get enough for these guys. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here, watch this, who's got five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? These people literally are about to walk past a potential miracle because what they see is so small, it's insignificant in their eyes. What they see is so tiny. What they see is so little. I remember hope that Amanda now leads. I remember clearly, clear as a day, I remember the small thing that started off. I could tell you the name of the young mum that I saw walk in with her three small children. She had two daughters and a son. And I saw her walking into church, newly a single mum. And I remember seeing her walk in and thinking to myself, it must be challenging to be a single mum and to raise a family, uh, you know, when you bear all the cost. I got up that morning, I said, I want everybody in church next week, I want you to bring some non-perishable food so that we can become a blessing to families that have got need. Well, that's a bunch of years ago now, 20-something, I don't know, seven. 
a lot of years ago. And since then, Hope has gone on to become a massive blessing right across the Perth community, helping people of all backgrounds, religion and none, all kinds of need and brokenness. And the Hope is still, but it started off as something so small, a tiny announcement in church that you would think to yourself, well, what could possibly come out of that? Red frogs that we've been talking about on church news and speaking about the pancake drive. Just a couple of years ago, Rhonda and I were in a supermarket and we were carrying a whole stack of pancake uh, shakers to bring to church for red frogs. The guy looked at us on the checkout counter, this is just prior to all the do-it-yourself stuff, and he said to me, oh, have you got a party happening, have you? And we said, no, these are for red frogs. Well, you'd think we'd hit this guy with a brick. He stopped right where he was. I'm not making this up at all. He began to tear up. He said, you guys saved my brother. He would have died on leaves if it wasn't for red frogs. He said, would you say thank you for me? But you know what that started out with? It started out with a couple of people going down unwanted down to Margaret River and to some of the areas down there and nobody wanted us there. They all thought we'd drive the, their biggest money maker for the year, we'd drive all the kids away. They never wanted us there. Now they celebrate us like crazy and welcome us and give us leadership and open slather pretty well. But you know, we're so small. Come on, I want you to get this because otherwise you'll, you'll make a commitment to serve in kids' church or a, a, a commitment to serve in something small or to do something small and you'll go, but God, what is this among so many? How do I meet all the need? Well, the answer is you can't. But the answer is you can do something. You can do something small. And just because something's small doesn't mean it's insignificant. This cloud was small but it's significant. It's small, but it's significant. Every time I preach, it wouldn't matter if there were thousands in front of me because there's six billion people in the world. And so it wouldn't matter to me if I had thousands in front of, preached to thousands, but you know, there's never enough. And all you can ever say is, God, let me do what I can do. It seems small. It seems not enough. But Lord, just because something's small doesn't mean it's insignificant. And in John 6, they're about to miss the entire miracle simply because something's small. You know, this is our year of enlarge, we believe God has spoken to us too. But many of the things that God will breathe on will be small at first. Listen, you don't enlarge what's already large. Makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you enlarge that which is small? So let me ask you, what is it in your life that's small? What is it in your life that's not big right now? And you look at it and you could dismiss it and go, well, what could that, come on, what could that do? How would that help? Well, Jeff, I come to church, but I don't know that what I'm doing is making a massive difference. See, that's the problem. We're looking for a massive difference rather than bringing the small to Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you do something with what I think is small, but to you is significant. That's what's happening in this story here. God will do something that's small at first. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Don't despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices. Watch this, the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. 
What can you start tonight? What can you begin tonight? Because if you will begin by saying to God, God, let me give you the, the small things in my life. We were telling Wayne and Libby about Jan Green, lady in our church who came to our church to do a research paper on a Pentecostal church. She was a lecturer at the Baptist School of Theology. While well, she came to church and never left. I led her father to Christ literally before he passed away. Her mum came the next Sunday and has been here ever since. And Jan, all of her life, has felt like God, you know, had given her a teaching gift. She's got three earned degrees, but she's legally blind. And all of the problems and setbacks she could have looked at in her life. But she said to God, I'll give you what's more. Well, a year ago, almost now, I think it'd be a year almost exactly, Pastor Bruce and I sat with her and said, we want to start an online discipleship course. We want you to write it. Well, you'd think that Jan had just won lotto. Uh, she feels like that's what her life was meant for, a small thing. But now I don't know how many, about 80 or 90, I think people are now online studying the Bible. Now that mightn't seem much, but the biggest Bible college in Perth is only a couple of hundred, I think, or less than that. So it's pretty significant, but it started small. What can you bring to God? Are you with me here? What can you bring to God? Even if it's small, it might only be a small shift in that troubled relationship. It might only be a small contract your business wins. It might be a slight shift, a lessening of the pain in your body. It might be small, but it can still be significant. Are you with me tonight? Just say to God, God, what I've got doesn't seem enough, but I'll give it to you. Here's the second thing. The power was never in the size of what God gives you. The power is never in the size of what He gives you. It's never about that. 1 Samuel 14 verse 6. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armour bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Now watch this, what it says, because it doesn't say what people think it says. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. In other words, God's not asking you to have nothing to prove His power. He's saying He can use a lot. And thank God He does. There's a lot of us and a lot of us that are serving. Thank God for all of that. But he says it's not about the numbers. That's what it's about. He says it doesn't matter whether there's a lot of you or just a couple. It doesn't make a scrap of difference to God. He can still move and He can still act in your world. The power's not in. Gideon started with 32,000 people going out against the Midianites. Ended up with 300. But you know, if God was about the numbers, He would have made it 100 or 50 or 20 or 10. Or five, and then how powerful would it have been? But see, it was never about the numbers. It was always about the heart of the few that were there. The 300 got picked, they self-selected. Why? They self-selected because they had a heart that said, I'm ready for battle. Can I say to you, when you begin to offer God that which is small, it's never about the peripheral. It's never about what's out there. It's always about the heart you bring. Amen? You might be here saying, Jeff, I'm a giver, but I can only give this much. Well, it was always about your heart, not the amount. Huh? Always about your heart. It, it always was. It was never about the amount. I'll never forget reading in the paper a couple of years ago about a lady in New York. They, uh, we lived there for three months. It was, uh, she was a, what they call a bag lady. Pushed everything she owned around in a shopping trolley. 
And uh, everybody thought she was just a homeless, penniless woman. When she died, they went through her possessions in that shopping trolley and found $45,000 American in cash. She had plenty, but she had a poor heart. She had enough to do really whatever she wanted to do. But it was her heart that held her back from what she could have been and what she could have done. And exactly the same way, I've seen God over the years use Christians that weren't as talented, but had a big heart. Amen. I've seen God over the years walk past the people and just because if you've got great talent, by the way, doesn't mean He's going to walk past you. Uh, you know, but it's always not about the numbers. It's about the size of the heart that you bring. Here's number three, third thing here. His perspective is what makes the difference. Everybody else sees a dry creek bed. They see the brown, dusty land. Only one man sees a small cloud and says, that's enough. I love this. I look around and I go, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. You know, we've been looking for a building for I don't know how long. And uh, people ask me all the time, what do you, well, you know, have you found a building? I go, no, I haven't found a building. And then I usually say, but I'm not looking for any building. I'm looking for the right building. But I'll tell you what, while we're looking for that, we believe where we are is enough. We believe no matter what it's like, we believe where we are is sufficient. And you and I need to be able to look around about our life and say, you know what? My perspective is going to be a perspective of what God is about and what God is doing. How many people walk past potential miracles because all they can see are the problems? See, the problem for everybody else, Elijah, apart from Elijah, is that drought had become their normal. Think about this a minute. Because I find the longer you've been a Christian, the more your life becomes your normal. And the power of God to bring change and transformation sits out there just a bit beyond you. And you get used to going through the motions. You get used to praying your prayers, doing your devotions, whatever you do. You get used to that as though, well, that's normal. And there's God standing on the other side with a miracle transformation waiting for you and for me, and yet I don't see it. I don't see it because my normal is too powerful and too much occupying my attention. And all the circumstances and all the I can'ts and all of that stuff is either going to be what you see or else you're going to see the seeds and say change can happen. Don Wilkerson, uh, sorry, David Wilkerson, Don's brother, who uh, started Teen Challenge. He was watching a court case on television. It was Nicky Cruz crossing the switchblade, a young violent man on trial for all kinds of terrible crimes, including murder. And he saw uh, this all happening on the television and he felt the Holy Spirit challenge him to give up his TV time for prayer. He was living in one of the well, we would just say the comfortable cities of America and New York was a long way away. And as he began to pray, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, go tell Nicky Cruz I love him. Now he's just a little small town preacher. No one's ever heard of him. He's got no inroads. He didn't come from a gang background. He didn't have any kind of culture that would give him a, an introduction into that world. But he felt like he should obey the Holy Spirit. So he went and got on a, a train and went up to New York City. And at the court case, as they are taking Nicky Cruz out of the court case, he walked up to him and he said, Nicky, 
Jesus sent me here to tell you that he loves you. Well, everybody think, well, Nikki Cruz would have been so impacted by that mercy and grace. It would have been wonderful. But this is what Nikki Cruz said. He said, preacher, I'm going to chop you up into little bits. He's there for murder. And so David Wilkerson, prompted by the Holy Spirit, says, you know what, Nikki? And every single piece is going to say, I love you. And he refused to give up. He did something small. But out of that teen challenge around the world, I preached at the Teen Challenge Farm in Raversburg in Pennsylvania to 600 people were a part of that program there. We've been to the Walter Hoving Home for Girls run by Cookie Rodriguez and spoken to 75 young women that used to be uh, in prostitution and in drug addiction. And, we, and we've done all, and all of that came out of one person saying, I'm going to see it differently. I'm not, can I say to you, come on, you've got to pull your head out of the news cycle. And you've got to pull your head out of some of the social media that's just full of all the nonsense on the planet and all the stuff that's going belly up and bad. And you've got to, you know, I keep reminding myself, you know, the Bible says the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And last I went to the ocean, there wasn't big holes in it where there was no water. Every time I've been down to the ocean, it's full of water, you know, tied in, tied out, still full of water. Huh? And the Bible says that. Why don't we believe that rather than, oh God, you know, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh God, oh God, it's not this, it's that. It's this problem, it's that. If you're not careful, come on, if you're not careful as a Christian, you'll get sucked in to believe everything the world's up to. You'll get sucked into all that and it'll so soak into your spirit, you'll have zero faith for anything. You won't be believing for people to come to Christ. You'll be thinking, oh, God, no one wants God anymore. Can I tell you, all over the world, people want God desperately. Everywhere here, we've had some of the most extraordinary people's salvations in this church in the last year. People coming to Christ in remarkable, incredible ways. I was telling Wayne and Libby about YesText. They've got 40 campuses around the world. I tell him about YesText. He starts jotting the whole lot down. He says, you know, how do you do this? And what about this? And how do you do this? Well, it started off small. Maybe it's only a small thing, but it can be significant. Here's number four, fourth thing. Don't wait for the crowd to get on board. Hey, come on. You know, and sometimes we're waiting for the Christian crowd. You know, we, can I say to you, the worship leader is not the circus ringmaster. They're not the warm-up act before the main person comes out, like some gigantic game show of God. It's not that. You know, can I say to you, I wouldn't care if the worship leader was on fire or not. I'm going to be on fire wherever I am. And I've sat in the front row and I've sat in the back row and I'm just saying, I'm, bringing, I'm like an astronaut. I'm just going to bring my own atmosphere wherever I go. Amen. I'm, I'm breathing in something of God. You know, I don't need a preacher to be eloquent, erudite and full of great oratory. I'm, I'm, I'm going to receive something. I'm hungry for God. Amen. My mum used to say, boy, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat it. <laughs> huh? And she was right. And she was not only right about, about food on the table. She was right about things in life. Amen. I think some of we've just gotten a bit more comfortable. I go over there to Egypt and go, Mark, Lord have mercy. You know, I said to Mark Patterson, who came with me from Transform Cambodia, because we went to a garbage church. They call it Garbage City Church. I didn't, that's not my word. That's, they call it Garbage City. The Uber driver didn't want to drive us there. 
said he didn't think it was safe for his car. So when we found that out and it was going so slow, uh, we said, well, how about we catch the Metro? So we got on the train and it was like sardines in a tin. And uh, get in there in this thing and I'm standing about this much higher than everybody else in there. And <laughs> let's just say that my skin colour is not Egyptian. And uh, people literally just staring at me like, what are you doing on this train? And we go out to this place where people live in, it's like a rubbish dump. And it's so, but you know, we went out there and there were 75 kids uh, singing songs about Jesus in, in a rubbish dump. Like, think about it, in a rubbish dip. There's 75 kids singing about Jesus, led by these amazing, she was a mother of a couple of kids who were fighting around her feet all the time. And there she is, you know, leading these people. And then we got to stay and pray with them. They were in Arabic. So we just spoke in tongues and just thought, well, we'll see whether any of them understand us. But they didn't. But anyhow, uh, you know, you can either wait for the crowd to press it. You can wait for the government to fix it. You can wait for, you know, anyway. Don't wait for the crowd. Watch this, Mark 5. I'm going to be finished in a minute. Mark 5, 27 to 28. When she had heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Now, get this. Everybody that was there was there because they'd heard about Jesus. So when the Scripture says in that verse there, verse 27, when she heard, everybody heard, but one person heard differently. One person thought differently. One person saw differently. Everybody else was there in the crowd. They've all heard about Jesus. But this woman, when she hears the crowd that they are there, but one woman goes, out of my way, I'm pressing in. Can I say to you, every time I preach something like this, I'm praying that there'll be at least one or two or five or 10 or 20 or however many in the building that are gonna say, you know what? Let me be that one. Let me be the one that presses through the crowd. Let me be the one. I'm not waiting for everybody else to get on board, for the worship leader to whip me up, for the preacher to stir me up. I'm gonna press in regardless of what the rest of the crowd get up to. Watch this, Mark 6, the very next chapter, verse 56. Wherever he entered into villages, cities or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. One woman was a trailblazer and the next chapter, everybody's into it. Oh, so that's how you do it. Listen to me, you might be the only person in your family that's got faith. Can I say to you, never bury it. Hold it strong. Amen. Believe God. Pray, never give up on your family to come to Christ. Never say, well, you know, they've, they've already told me they're not interested. I'd go, no, they're only not interested right now. And if the Holy Spirit works on, because it was never about your argument, your logic. It was never about my ability. I've made uh, uh, 10,000 altar calls in my life, invitations for people to come to Christ. I've never felt like it was my job to persuade them. 
Because if the Holy Spirit works, if the Holy Spirit touches them, they'll say yes to Jesus. That's what'll happen. People will come to Christ and there will be a transformation takes place in someone's life. Not because we're a church with nice lights and lovely scenery and stuff and clever bits and pieces, but simply because where the Holy Spirit is, something powerful happens. So we can have a night on Friday night that goes for two hours of worship and someone gives their life to Christ from a completely unchurched, unchristian background. How does that happen? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit was there. Don't wait for the crowd. Maybe you're the only one in your school, your class at university. Maybe you're the only person in your workplace. But only one man saw the crowd and believed and that became a turning point. Amen. Here's the fifth one. Because we just finished 90 days of prayer. And I don't know how big the biggest crowd was. Probably Friday night, I suppose. But can I tell you, it was never about, you know, getting big groups of people together to pray. It was about how do we saturate the entire church with prayer? How do we kind of get everybody as many as possible? It's all right, they're moving to do something. Listen to me. How do we get prayer happening? And, you know, some people are going to be loud prayers. They're going to be shouters and yellers. And then all the quiet people get a bit nervous. And some people just sit there and whisper. Can I, I said this to Wayne and Libby, the best prayer is not the style of prayer, it's the one God answers. Amen? I don't care how you pray, but I do care that you do. Because the turning point here started with prayer. Have you ever noticed that great moments in the Word of God always seem to start with prayer? The day of Pentecost. They've been praying for 10 days. Christians now want microwave Jesus. Bing. Oh, I prayed. I went for 30 seconds. Bing. Oh, this was a real big thing I had to cook. I went for a minute and 20 seconds. Bing. And we kind of then bring it out. And if it's not cooked, we go, well, what's with that? But Peter was in prayer on the rooftop of a house and got so entranced with what uh, he began to see it's while he's in prayer. And that's where the Gentiles begin to come into the, the gospel. It's John, that great book of Revelation that is still yet to be unpacked for all of humanity. But it says this in the first chapter, and John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Are you, are you getting this yet? Elijah gets up on a mountain and what's the turning point? The turning point is that, is that a man says, I'm going to pray. And he gets up and looks. Back comes the servant, says nothing. He says, prays again. He says, go and have another look. Nothing. He prays again. He says, go and look again. He says, there's nothing. Fourth time, go and look. There's nothing. Fifth, there's nothing. Sixth, there's nothing. Seventh time, nothing. The eighth time he looks. He goes back there and he comes back. He says, I can see this. And that was enough. I thank God with all my heart. I, I say this often to people because I'm not sure. See, Christianity is not a bunch of rules or behaviours. It's a walk with the Holy Spirit. The greatest adventures of my life. I thank God of all the things I ever learned. I thank God I learned to pray as much as I have. I'm not the paragon, the example of it. But I've learned to press into God. I've learned to not give up. I've learned to say, God, I'm going to seek you. And I've learned that it's not always instant. It's not always an emotion. 
I've started a lot of prayers full of emotion, full of excitement. Woo, yeah. And that evaporates after time three and four and five. And then you're back there. Go on the journey of prayer. Come on. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, it makes a difference. You've got to become a prayer. Huh? The disciples never said, Jesus, teach us how to walk on water because that would be such a party trick. I love that. Woo-hoo. Come on, show me how you do that thing. You know when you turn that water into wine? I've got a great marketing idea. Have I got a business proposition? Because I've got a lake down the back of my yard. I've got a pool and I'm going to go shazam. And then we're going to bottle it and I'm going to be rich. Teachers had it. They never asked him any of that stuff. They never asked him how to do anything except they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. It's the only thing they ever asked him to teach. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Come on. Teach us how to pray. Now, I know, I, I know that for a lot of people going, oh, Jeff, you know, I just get bored. Well, so do I. Sorry to shock you. I get bored. I get, my brain goes a million miles an hour. I'm not sure what they diagnose me with, but I've never wanted to get close enough to let them diagnose it. All, all I know is I've got ants in my pants and, and I just want to do something. I, you know, out a day off in Cairo doing nothing. I'm sitting in the hotel room going, this drives me up the wall. Are you serious? What, what? I said to Mark, how can you do nothing here in this place? I can't do nothing, so let's go. So we went walking all over Cairo, which is why they all thought we were weird. <laughs> Come on, go on the journey of it. Let me stir you up. Let me encourage you to, to get a turning point in your life and world. I want to say thank you to everyone that's been a part of 90 Days of Prayer because you have raised the spiritual temperature. If a degree of one or two means that we have a climate emergency, then I look at that and go, what if we were to raise the spiritual temperature by one or two? That would qualify as a spiritual breakthrough, wouldn't it? That's how easy it is. Amen. And one of the great things in the life of our church in the last three months, as people have just got together. And, you know, I've been a part of some of them, not all of them. But as we've got together to pray, you can feel like, hmm, something starts to rise. Amen. And you might go, well, Jeff, I, you know, I, I, I've tried praying for hours. I can't. Good. Pray for five minutes. I always say that the people, when they say to me, how do I build a life of prayer? I say, start five minutes every day. Five minutes. Anyone can do five. Well, most everyone can do five. I'm pretty sure some of us, we go four. God, I pray for everything. <laughs> I remember the first time I told God I'd pray two hours a day, I prayed for everything. I prayed for all the missionaries, all the people I'd ever heard of. Every issue, I prayed for all the governments. I looked at my watch and it was less than 10 minutes. And I thought, great, only an hour and 50 to go. <laughs> and I just said, thank God for speaking in tongues, but otherwise I would never have made even 20 minutes. Are you with me? God wants to bring turning points to our life. Come on, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us tonight. Every one of us here. Matter of fact, come on, let's stand to our feet for a second. Come on. Lift your hands before God. Come, team. Be out of, lift, lift our hands before God and say, God, I want to be a, have turning points in my life. I want something to change. There's some of you here in this place tonight and there's been like things that you go, you know, I grew up with that. It's become my normal. My dysfunction, my family's dysfunction. Oh, all my family are like that. They're just all, you know, short fuse and 
you know, they're, they're always anxious. My mum was a warrior and that's where I got it from. Can I say to you, why don't we lift our hands tonight and say, God, would you give me a turning point? God, would you give me a turning point? And you start praying and you go, what am I seeing? Well, I don't see any difference. Jeff, I prayed this week. I didn't see any difference. But why don't you come and look again next week? Well, you go, I didn't see anything. Well, maybe you're going to have to go eight times and then somewhere along the way you're going to go, oh, look, there's a slight change. There's something small in that place. God, by your Holy Spirit, use us mightily, we pray. Following you, Lord, was never about us getting blessed. It was about us being a blessing. Help us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. I am who you say I am. I'm not who the enemy says I am. I'm not the broken dysfunctional, can hardly make it Christian, but I am who you say I am. I am who you say. Come on, let's sing it together. Lift it up before God. Tonight, let's take a couple of minutes. We've got time for it. Take a couple of minutes. Right where you are, I know that right now the Holy Spirit is doing business with something's happening in people's hearts and lives. People are going to go out of here saying, I've got a resolve and an expectation I never had before. Something shifted in my life. Faith is coming into people's hearts tonight. I'm not just saying that. I know what I'm saying to be true. Faith is coming. Some of you here that have struggled, come on, you struggle to believe, not in God, but you struggle to believe that God would use you or that your life could be of impact. And faith's coming into you tonight, right now. Faith's coming. You're going to go out here and go, you know what? I reckon God will do it. Come on. Come on. Lead us out. Thanks, Ruby. Thank you, Lord.